Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Special guest, Jim Douglas. Would you take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 10? Matthew chapter 10. Um, I was sharing with some of the brothers before service started this morning. I was, you know, I was got up and, and I was invigorated about six o'clock this morning and and then, you know, went and, and did a little little quiet time, a little study. You know, a teacher never, he's done when he closes his last book before he ascends to teach. That's just kind of the way it is. And I was all charged up and jumped in the shower and, and somehow developed a crick in my neck. And I told Ramona about it. She said, well, was it that vigorous? And I said, well, yes, it was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a thorn in the flesh this morning, but, but uh, God blessed me with a, with a foghorn voice. So that, that's all that's really necessary. Uh, and and uh, to proclaim his truth. One of my disciples, uh, an elderly man um, that I met some dozen years ago, uh, Brother Don Shuey. Uh, Brother Don Shuey was responsible for getting me involved in prison ministry. And, uh, and, and I praise the Lord for Brother Don, just a great warrior, tremendous warrior for the Lord. Don... Um, Worked in the Billy Graham organization for about 17 years uh, before his wife died. And uh, Don, one of Don's ministries now is he, he's, he's a bookworm, and he goes all over in search of good Christian books. I mean, anywhere there's a book sale, Don will go and ferret through them, and he'll take them and distribute them to four or five of us, and we'll read and and, and, and those that are doctrinally and theologically sound, he puts them in bags and ships them overseas to, uh, to a lot of the pastors that, that I meet around the world. And he's been doing this for many, many years. Just uh, if you go to his apartment, you can't get through it for the books. I mean, Don, that's, that's just Brother Don. But Brother Don gave me a book um, by a man by the name of A.B. Simpson uh, entitled Quiet Talks on Service. And in this book, there was a little allegorical or, or fantasy story uh, about Jesus' return to, to heaven after his ascension. And as the story goes, he's walking along the street with Gabriel. Gabriel, all heaven is rejoicing, and, and they're glad that he's, he's back. And, and, and so he and Gabriel are walking along arm in arm down the golden streets. And Gabriel said, uh, Master, you died for... Uh, everybody down there, did you not? And he said, yes. He said, do they know that uh, what you've done for them? He said, oh no, only a few people in Palestine know. He said, well, master, what's your plan for letting everyone else know? He said, well, you know, I asked Peter and James and John and a few others if they would make it the business of their lives to, uh, to tell others. And those others will tell others and Others will tell others, and soon everyone will know. And Gabriel said, but, but Master, 
Um, what is your backup plan? He'd probably be in a, a good American, wouldn't he? We like a backup plan. <laughs> What's your backup plan? Uh, what, if, what if Peter somehow loses heart? You know, he's, he's a little unstable. And, and what if Andrew, you know, uh, just doesn't tell anybody? And, and what if James, you know, fizzes out? What, what then? What's your plan? He said, Gabriel, I have no other plan. I'm counting totally on them. That's a fantasy. It's an allegory. But it's not far from the truth. Not at all. In fact, it represents the truth very well. Jesus trained those men and left the entire process of world evangelization into their hands. And they told others, and they told others, and they told others, and as a result, we're here today. Now, <clears throat> last week we looked at the Great Commission, our marching orders uh, as Christians before the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to get that, that tape or that CD. Um, there might be some things in there of interest to you uh, as a believer. This week, we're going to fall back to Matthew chapter 10 and look at the training. How did Jesus do this? What were some of his strategies? The training of the 12. Matthew 10, 1 through 4. And having summoned his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits, cast them out, and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. And here we find just a, a brief interlude, if you will, on the training of the twelve. And, and that's all through the chapter of, of the tenth of Matthew, is how he trained them. It's other places too, but it's very high profile here. You remember back in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus looked out over the multitude that were coming to him, and he saw them as a field of grain. And not only them, but also the world as a field of grain, a field to be harvested, either to be burned or to be barned. And Matthew 13, 41 tells us that the angels are the reapers that will, that will reap those who don't come to Christ and cast them into hell. And so he saw the entire world, as it were, as a field, a vast field, to be either barned or to be burned, to be gathered in for the harvest. And so in Matthew 9, 38, he asked his disciples to pray, to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into the harvest. 
And then in verse 1 of chapter 10, he commissions the ones praying to be the ones going. And then in chapter 10, verse 6, those that have been commissioned are sent out to go. And in verse 7, they're to preach the kingdom of God, to warn men of the inevitable doom of judgment, the harvest. So when they begin to pray and they begin to see things through the eyes of Christ, you see, when Jesus looked out over that vast multitude coming to him, the Bible says that he was moved with compassion. And that's a word, the word compassion is a word for your for your bowels, for your innermost being. You see, when you have emotions that flare up, that's where they really get you, here. And in the Old Testament and all throughout the Bible, the bowels of compassion is a description of what happens when one is emotionally moved. And Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw this great multitude headed toward judgment. And so he asked the disciples to pray, and once they prayed and began to see the things that Jesus saw through his eyes, then they also would be moved to do something about it. You see, prayer is not enough. You can't content yourself with just praying. You have to be willing to go to the work. You know, Martin Luther had a friend, uh, a very dear friend. He was a fellow monk in the Catholic Church, and Luther became convinced that justification was not by the works of the flesh. It wasn't through baptism. It wasn't through Mary. It wasn't through the indulgences. It wasn't through any of those things. He became convinced that justification was by grace through faith because that's what the Bible said. And he decided that he was going to reform the Roman Catholic Church from the inside. And this dear friend of his said, look, I I really believe in what you're doing here, and I believe that that's exactly what the Bible says, so I want to to assist you in this task. So Luther and his friend made a pact, and he decided, Luther's friend decided that he would retreat to a monastery and pray while Luther went down into the heat of the battle to try and reform the Roman Catholic Church. And the battle was fierce. And Luther would report back to his friend periodically. And then the biographer says one night his friend had a dream. And he dreamed that he saw the world as a vast field to be harvested. And in that field, he saw one man going through that field, attempting to harvest. And it was obviously an untenable task. And as he continued in his dream, the biographer says that he happened to catch the, a glimpse of the face of that one man, and it was his friend, Martin Luther. And he woke up, and he immediately went to find Luther, and he said, I must leave my prayers because God has shown me that praying is not enough. I must give myself to the work. And I believe that's where we are here in chapter 10, verse 1. Up to this point, one solitary man, the Lord Jesus Christ, has been doing all the work of the ministry alone. All of the work of the ministry alone. And remember, 
Philippians 2 says he laid aside his independent use of his divine rights and privileges. So he was doing this as a man, not as God. He functioned as a man for our benefit to show us how to do it. And so he enlists these 12 to assist in warning men. And in these first four verses, there are some wonderful, wonderful truths and principles of discipleship. Now, we'll not get to verse 5. That's where the main thrust of the passage starts, but we would be unfair and remiss if we didn't begin where God's Word tells us, because man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And there's some wonderful truths here with regard to discipleship. There are basically four phases in Christ's training of the twelve. Four phases. Phase one, he called them to, uh, to conversion. And you can find that back in John chapter 1. If you remember, uh, two disciples of John the Baptist were standing there where John was baptizing, and he looked up and saw Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And Andrew and John, who were his disciples, immediately followed Jesus. That was their calling to conversion. And you can find that in John 1, 35 through 51. Phase two, he called them to be trained, to be trained. And that you can find in Matthew 4, 18 through 22, where he walked along the shore. They had already believed in him. They'd already confirmed him as the Messiah. So they had already believed him as much as they could. And he called them to full-time ministry. He said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. Notice that they were called to a person. They were not called to a program. You know, we get very programmatic in our churches. They were not called to a program. They were not called to a principle. They were called to a person. To a person. He said, follow me. They called to the greatest person, Jesus, the greatest process. He said, I will make you. And the greatest outcome, fishers of men. So that was their calling to full-time ministry. And then in phase three, which begins here in our text, was their initial sending, their initial sending. They're sent out on an apprenticeship, if you will, an internship. And they had already spent about 18 months with him, and they would spend many more months. But here they're called to him for their training, for their training. And a lot of people criticized that. They said, you know, there's, there's 12 able-bodied men walking around with this teacher all day. They've left their pursuits in life. They've, they've left their fishing businesses, their tax gathering, and they do nothing but follow him around. And when he speaks, they listen like everyone else. They do nothing but go with him. And it became a point of criticism for some of the critics of Jesus in that day. And you can read some of that in some of the uh, old Jewish historians, uh, Casuto and, and people such as uh, Eusebius. But he called them to training, to training. And then the final phase was after his ascension, where he commissioned them, to, or after his resurrection, where he commissioned them to send them out, and that's what we looked at last week. We'll consider only two of the three features 
in the first four verses this morning because there's just not time to do anything different. First, we'll talk about their initiation. How did he get them involved in this? What did he do? Their initiation. Then we'll look at their identity. Their identity. Who were these men? What kind of people does Jesus use? And the third one, their impact, we will leave for another time. So first, their initiation. How did Jesus do this, and what did he have to deal with in training these men? Verse 1 says that he summoned them, or he called them to himself, the twelve. And the word is proskaleo. Kaleo means called, and pros means toward. And in classical Greek, it was almost exclusively used for a calling for a specific commission, calling to give them a command. So he called them to himself to give them a command, a commission. And you'll notice that in verse 1, they are disciples. They are disciples. That's their training. In verse 2, they are named apostles. Disciples, mathetes, is the word for learner or pupil or understudy, an apprenticeship, if you will. An apostle is one sent forth. Uh, That word, stalos, means to be dispatched or sent. Apa means away from. So he called them to train them and then to send them away from himself as far as he could get them to go to take the message of the gospel. Now, in a sense, I too am one who has been sent, and so have you. Because if you remember in our text last week, he said teaching them, those who would believe through their words, teaching them to obey all things I have commanded you. So we too are sent, but not as an office. There are no more apostles. There are only 14 men in the history of the world that could claim that specific calling, apostles of Jesus Christ, the office of apostle. Ephesians tells us they were the foundation of the church. And as a result of that, they had special miracle working power because there was no scripture and God gave them miracle working power to substantiate the message that he was giving through those men. Their writing became scripture. So we are also sent, but we're sent in a different light. In a different light. Apostles with a small a. A small a. I know that, you know, in Christianity today, there are a lot of believers that think that that some of the men who represent Christ today are apostles as an office. Not so. Not so. Acts 1 tells us that they had to see the risen Savior alive, and there's nobody 2,000 years old today. Can't meet the qualifications. No, we're sent to represent Christ, sent on a mission with a message of the gospel, but it's an apostle with a small a. We're one sent. And every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ fits into that. So how did he do that? Well, first, these men were chosen sovereignly. They were chosen sovereignly. Mark 3.13 says, He called on him those whom he would those whom he would. You see, God always chooses sovereignly. Always. Always. He chose Moses. 
He chose Abraham. He chose Jeremiah. You know, none of these men were seeking to be used of the Lord. He chose them. He chose the Apostle Paul. He chose the twelve. It is God's sovereign choice. You see, a lot of people seem to think that God, his pattern of choosing was set aside, and now he's sitting up there with a fish hook, fishing for men, hoping that somebody will take the bait. No. No. That's not how God does that. He would not do what he has done and pay the price that he has done, he has paid, and leave it to chance whether or not a few people want to believe in him. No, God chooses sovereignly. He chose you. He chose you. You, you might think that you woke up one, door, one day and said, ah, I need the Lord. <laughs> it didn't work that way. <laughs> now, don't ask me how your decision factors in with God's sovereign choice. That's his business, and I'm going to leave it to him. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And nobody else does but the Lord himself. You know, somebody asked Spurgeon, he was always preaching on the doctrine of election, and they said, well, why don't you just preach to the elect? He said, well, if you run around and pull up everybody's shirt and let me see if they have an E stamped on their backs, I will. But until then, I'll preach to everything that moves. You see, that, that's God's business, and he can handle it. We can't. You know, we want to. We want to somehow fit that into our little doctrinal and theological boxes and try to... You destroy the issue. Let God be God. That's his issue. And I'm going to leave it to him. You try to figure that out, you'll find yourself under the bed reciting the Greek alphabet. You can't figure that out. <laughs> That's God's business. And I'm going to leave it to him. So they were chosen sovereignly. Jesus in John 15, 16 said, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bear fruit, and your fruit should remain. I make no apologies for quoting King James, Roger. That's kind of what I learned. <laughs> so they were chosen sovereignly. Secondly, they were chosen after a night of prayer. After a night of prayer. Luke 6, 12. After a night of prayer, it says that Jesus went out to a mountain to pray that night before choosing these men, and he prayed all night long, all night long. That's a wonderful example and lesson for us, a wonderful principle for us. You see, you don't want to go choose those yourself whom you want to pour your life into in discipleship. You don't want to do that. I was telling a brother earlier, you know, every disciple I've ever personally enlisted is gone. <laughs> they all left the process, every last one of them, you know. But those that God sent me are fruitful and multiplying and reproducing around the globe. But everyone I went out and enlisted, they're gone, just dropped out of the process. And here you see the Son of God himself all night in prayer before making this decision on whom that he would pour his life into. Great example. So they were chosen sovereignly. They were chosen after a night of prayer. Uh, in John 17, 6, he affirms that they were the men given him by the Father. Thirdly, they were chosen to be trained. They were chosen to be trained. There must be a time of training. There must be a time 
when those are literally, literally inducted into the process and trained in what God wants us to do. That's very, very important. You know, you don't want to be like the man who was called to go and he jumped on his horse and rode madly off in all directions. You know, he just wanted to go. He didn't know where or what to do. Well, we don't want to do that. There has to be a time of training, and these men were trained. Trained. Isn't that something? Trained by the Lord Jesus himself. I mean, can you imagine just walking along with him all day long? Just constant wisdom. You know, see him love people that are unlovable. He tells us to love our enemies. You know, it's easy to love your enemies till you get one. <laughs> it's not so much fun then. Now, some of you laughing, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> see, you just love your enemy till you get one. But, but to, to see him love people that were unlovable, like the scribes and Pharisees, I mean, they were pretty well an unlovable bunch. But to walk around with that person all day long, the person of Christ, hearing him teach and hearing him pray and, and witnessing his ministry and, and seeing how he does what he does. You see, discipleship is not sitting in a classroom for 10 weeks. See, the institutional church today wants to make that programmatic. It doesn't work. It's not done by programs. It's done by persons. It's not done by materials. It's done by men and women. It is life transference. It is life transference. It is not done by sitting in a classroom for 10 weeks and, okay, we're going to crank out trained disciples on the other end and they're going to go do the work of the ministry. No, it's not done that way. It's life transference. You know, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he said, you have 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. He said, you've fully known my doctrine, my manner of life, my struggles. I mean, it was transparent. He made himself transparent in front of this man. You see, you don't... Thank you, brother. You don't uh, parade your failures in front of your disciple, but you don't hide them either. You don't hide them either. That person needs to know that you struggle just like everybody else. There's no perfect down here. If you're looking for perfect, you better look up. You put your faith in anything perfect here, you stay out of it because you'll screw it up when you get in there. <laughs> There's no perfect down here. You know, we look at the apostles and, and, you know, to make matters worse, we call them saints. You know, a saint is not a canonized Catholic. A saint is not somebody that has been dubbed by the Pope, you are now a saint. No. The New Testament says all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are saints. You see? And to make matters worse, we, you know, we name cities after St. Andrew and St. Paul and St. Peter. And you know, we turn them into stained glass saints. And these men, this, this was the rabble of society. <laughs> I dare you to study the background of these men. This was the rabble of society. They were not you know, polished statues sitting up somewhere. No, these were real people just like you and me. The miracle is that Jesus could turn them into people that would change the world. So we learn from the lifestyle and training of Jesus that discipleship is better caught than taught. 
Oh, yeah, there are going to be times that you're going to need to meet with them and teach them from God's word. But there's also the time that they have to be with you. Mark 3 says Jesus ordained the 12 that they should be with him, with him in all different walks of life, seeing how he react, how he responds, how he did what he did. It's life transference. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. That's always the pattern in the New Testament of disciple making. Now, in the training of the 12, and I I plagiarized that title, I'll tell you that. Some of you are familiar with the book by A.B. Bruce. It's a wonderful, wonderful work. It's about 600 pages. I don't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> Especially guys. You know, guys, we don't, we don't do novels real well. We, you know, if they give us a book that's 200 pages or less, we, we might read that. But 600 pages, eh, you know, most of us can't be bothered with that. Uh, but A.B. Bruce uh, wrote a book, The Training of the Twelve. It's a wonderful, wonderful expose on, the, on Jesus' training of the twelve disciples. A shorter book that I would recommend to you is Robert Coleman's Master Plan of Evangelism. Uh, he basically took A.B. Bruce's big, thick book and, and distilled it, basically. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful read. Wonderful read. There's another one that I, I want to recommend to you, but we'll leave that to Pastor. He's been reading that. So if he chooses to recommend that to you, then he can do that. It was written by my disciple, Herb Hodges. But... <clears throat> In training these 12, the Lord had to deal with five basic inadequacies. And it's the same thing with us. It's the same thing with the people will disciple. You see, I need to see that these men aren't stained glass saints. I need to see that they're just real people like you and me. Uh, otherwise, I'd be intimidated and not, not believe that the Lord could use me to do this. Five basic inadequacies that Jesus had to deal with. Number one, they lacked spiritual understanding. They lacked spiritual understanding. Jesus dealt with this through teaching, through teaching. If you look at Matthew 15, 15, Matthew 15, 15, and 16, then Peter, who was the leader, he was the leader among the 12, and we'll talk about that in a minute, he came to, to the Lord and said, explain to us this parable. Explain to us this parable. And look at what Jesus said. Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand? In other words, don't you get it yet? <laughs> I mean, haven't you gotten it yet? That's exactly what he was saying there. You know, I remember when, uh, when Brother Herb Hodges started discipling me, he turned to one of the men he had been discipling for a couple of years and said, Coleman has seven steps or eight steps that he framed of Jesus' training of the twelve, and we've been studying that now for a couple of years. Give me Coleman's eight steps. And the man gave him the first one. <laughs> And, and couldn't give him the other seven. And he said, sir, I will not permit slouchy, sloppy fault 
in this group. I will not permit it. You have been in this training for at least two years now, and I will not permit slouchy, sloppy thought. The next time I ask you for that, please have it for me. We go, oh, you can't treat people like that. Well, Jesus did. Jesus did. You see, he never permitted slouchy, sloppy thought. When the tax gatherers who were gathering a temple tax, by the way, came to Simon Peter and said, doesn't your master pay the tax? And he said, well, yes, my master is not a tax dodger. Of course he pays the tax. And then he went to where Jesus was, and Jesus said, what are you thinking? Simon! <laughs> That's literally the way he said it. You can see that in the Greek text. He hammered this man. He said, you know what you just told them? That is a temple tax. That is a sin tax. You just told them I was a sinner. You thought you were doing good in defending me, and in reality, you're besmirching me by telling those people that I'm a sinner. What are you thinking? And they called him by his own name because he was acting like his old self, Simon. You see, I know where my discipler got that model. It's a serious business. We got to get on with this. Oh, we have lots of fun, lots of fun, wonderful. And we don't take ourselves too seriously. I don't take myself seriously at all. Well, you can be victimized when you, say, <laughs> you take yourself too seriously. But I take seriously what I ought to take seriously. I'm just not among that list. <laughs> so they lack spiritual understanding. How did Jesus do, what did he do about this? How did he deal with that? He dealt with it through teaching. Secondly, they lacked humility. They lacked humility. In Mark 9, verses 33 and following, they were arguing over who would be the greatest. And, and they didn't think Jesus knew it, you know. They're walking along. Can't you see them walking along behind him, elbowing each other and kicking each other and carrying on? <laughs> and, <laughs> and he said, what was it that you argued about along the way? What, what was that? And he got real quiet, real sheepish, you know, because they knew he knew. <laughs> they were arguing about who would be the greatest. Real humble bunch, right? <laughs> Stained glass saints, <laughs> arguing over who would be the greatest. And then in Matthew chapter 20, James and John wanted the, the, chief, the, the chief seat so bad that they got their mother involved. The audacity. There they come up hanging onto her skirt tails, and they worship him first, because you always do that when you want something. <laughs> okay. So they worship him first, and Jesus said, what do you want? She said, well, grant that these my two sons, one sat on the left and the other went on the right. You know, I mean, obviously, it should be obvious to you that they got the right stuff for leadership here. You know, I mean, they got it, man. They, they're, you know, they're sons of thunder. <laughs> they're strong. They're leaders, man. Peter, I mean, you know, he's, he's shifting sand, man. He's all over the place. So, you, you know, grant that these. And the Lord said, are you able to drink the cup, which I'm going to drink up? And they said, we are able. Confident. <laughs> he said, okay, then you'll get to do that. You'll get to drink from the cup. But to be on the, the chief seats left and right are not mine to give. You know, this isn't something that you can suck up and get. We know a lot of people that do that today. <laughs> it's not something you can do that with. 
No, not at all. And they did drink the cup. They did. James was the first one martyred. Within 14 years after the ascension of Christ, he was martyred. John suffered persecution all of his life and lived to be somewhere between 95 and 100 years old. You know, so they did drink of the cup. You know, the Romans had a coin that had an ox pictured on it, and the ox was facing an altar and a plow. And underneath the inscription said, ready for either. Ready for either. For James, it was the altar. James was killed. He was the first disciple killed. He was a bigger problem than any of them. That tells you what kind of zeal he had for the Lord. Um, you want to look at his zeal, just look at the account in Matthew where the people weren't listening and wouldn't receive Jesus. And he said, Lord, these people are not listening. Would you that we should call down fire upon their heads? <laughs> Great missionary heart. <laughs> and Jesus rebuked him and his brother John and said, you don't know what spirit you have. This isn't the time for the spirit of Elijah. We're not condemning a, a nation that is defected. This is time for the kingdom to be preached. But um, they obviously lacked humility. How did Jesus deal with that? Through example. Through example. In John 13, he washed their feet. Washing of the feet was left to the lowest slave in the household. Lowest slave in the household. You see, in that day, they didn't have nice paved roads like we have and, and cars and, you know, and vehicles to ride on like that. And they walked on the same paths that the animals walked on, and, and they... You know, the animals, as they walked along those paths, did what animals do and, and relieved themselves along the way on the path, and, 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 and they wore sandals, you see, sandals. And so, you know, you're squishing along in that. <laughs> Get the picture? <laughs> and, and when they ate, you know, they, they reclined on, their, on the floor on one elbow Sorry, but the, the pictures of the Lord's Supper that you see with everybody sitting around the table, ink, wrong, but thanks for playing. Didn't work that way. They, they reclined on one elbow and had a lazy Susan in the middle of the floor with the food on it, and so your feet would be near someone else's head. So it was really important that the feet got washed <laughs> when you came in for the meal. Okay? So many times our Christian artifacts do us a disservice. <clears throat> But Jesus humbled himself and washed their feet. They couldn't get down and wash each other's feet because they had just finished arguing over who was going to be the greatest. Man, if we're arguing over who's going to be the greatest, dear brother, you know, I, I can't get down and wash your feet because, you know, we're, we're in competition here over status. And so the Lord of glory himself got down and gave them a lesson in humility. He wasn't teaching them to wash feet, by the way. That, that's not at all what he was teaching them. He was teaching them humility. Humility by example. Third, they lacked faith. They lacked faith. And Jesus dealt with this by working miracles and showing them the miraculous power of God. In fact, the first miracle that he worked, turning the water into wine. Hello, Baptist. Not grape juice. <laughs> I'm just keeping it real. Turn the water into wine. 
Okay, the first, and he was at a party when he did it. He said, wow, wait a minute, Jim. We got to keep the standard high. Oh, your standard's higher than the Lord's. That's what you just told me. That's legalism. And God hates it. Hates it. Just despises it. It is an absolute contradiction of what true Christianity is about. The first miracle that he worked was turning the water into wine. And the scripture says that he did that so that his disciples would believe. So he dealt with their unbelief by working miracles, showing the mighty power of God. And I've got some references for you there. We'll move a little faster. You remember in Mark 16, 14, he rebuked them because they didn't even believe those who had told him they had seen Jesus after the resurrection. They had a lack of faith. And Jesus did that constantly by working miracles on their behalf. You know, I've discipled men and am discipling men. They have a lack of faith. I show them from the scriptures the mighty power of God and how God can transform a life. I show them from my own life how God can transform a life. Did I hear amen over there? All right. <laughs> you men who proclaim the word of God publicly, you know that your wife always knows. <laughs> she can tell you exactly who had that right faith. <laughs> you know exactly who Terry Zabolski is. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Fourth, they had a lack of commitment. They lacked commitment. That's a big one. That's a big one. You see, when you begin to disciple, one of the things that you want to do is you want to taste, test faithfulness. Faithfulness. I look for people that are what I call fat, F-A-T, not like this. Faithful, available, and trainable. Faithful, available, and trainable. And build in a little test along the way. Okay, be at my house at 5 a.m. Tuesday morning. See you there. Share with your name on it. Be happy. Be happy to help you with this, brother. It's testing that faithfulness. Faithful, available, and trainable. Because he's not going to waste my time. I'm not going to let him waste God's time. And he's not going to waste his own by telling me he wants to do something and then he's not faithful toward it. I'll continue to love him, but let him go do what it is he's got to do. Put him on the shelf and let God deal with him for a while and maybe God will bring him back. Maybe he won't. You know, but, but that's, how, that's how it is. Jesus dealt with this by prayer. By prayer. See, in Luke 5, 11, their first calling to ministry, the scripture says they forsook all. But in Mark 14, 15, it says when the staves and the swords and all of that death was staring them in the face that they all forsook. How did Jesus deal with this? He dealt with it through prayer. Through prayer. You can see an example of that in Luke 22 where he talked to Simon Peter and he said, Simon, called him by his own name. That's a pattern in Scripture. When he's, he's either, when he's called Simon, he's either sinful Simon or secular Simon. If they want to refer to something as Simon's boat or Simon's nets, that's a secular reference. When he's sinful, he's also called Simon. 
And you can look at that in John 21 where Jesus called him exclusively by his old name, Simon, because he had defected and defaulted and decided he was going to turn back and go back to the fishing business. And God frustrated the fishing that night and set up that entire account for one man, for one man to get his attention because he was his key leader. If Jesus had permitted that, we never would have heard of him. He had six of the other apostles with him. I mean, this guy was an incredible leader. And God had to get his mind right. So he set up that entire account in John 21 for that one man to pull him back into the process and get him on the road to doing what he wanted him to do. He said, Simon, Satan desires to have you, to sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you are converted, then strengthen the brethren. So Jesus dealt with their life of commitment through prayer. And there he was talking about Simon's coming denial of himself. Fifthly, they, lacked, they had a lack of power. Lack of power. How did Jesus deal with this? In John 20, 22, he walked in and said, breathe, the Bible says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of, there's a lot of confusion around that. A lot of confusion around that. Some people say, well, they already had the Holy Spirit, so on the day of Pentecost, that was their baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, first of all, that's a bad term. There is no baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word chi can be translated if or or with or in, but never by or of the Holy Spirit. You see, can't be. What he gave them was a special filling of the Holy Spirit so that they could understand what he was going to teach them over the next 40 days. They couldn't understand it otherwise. You know, before this, constantly he say, do you understand? And they say, yes, Lord, we understand. <laughs> only, only to prove that they didn't understand any of it. The scripture says they understood none of these things. None? And Lord, we've been together for 18 months. If I'd have been Jesus and now, Father, 18 months later and they understand none of these things? Could they understand some of these things? Are you sure we got the right ones? (laughs) They were dull. They were dull. We are too. Without the Holy Spirit, we're we're just dull. We We can't understand the things of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us. So he breathed on them and gave them a special filling so that they could understand the things that he was going to teach them for the next 40 days. And then at Pentecost, he actually sent the Holy Spirit to baptize them. The Holy Spirit is the element of baptism. Jesus is the baptizer, Scripture tells us. And so they were submerged in the Holy Spirit and filled by the Holy Spirit and indwelt by the Holy Spirit from that time forward. It was not a second blessing. That's what you hear it called, Second blessing, Romans chapter 8, verses 11 and 12 say that if any man has not the Spirit of God, he's none of his. There's no second blessing. Colossians says that he's given us all. We are complete in him. Complete. So there's nothing that he needs to add at a later date. So he dealt with their lack of power by giving them the Holy Spirit. And it is ours to teach them what they have in the person of the Holy Spirit inside. 
Now, how did he do this? What was his strategy? Turn to John 17, verse 4. John 17, 4. Bible leaves. Man, they have a distinct sound when you hear them turning. That's wonderful. Unmistakable. No other book sounds like that when you turn it. John 17. This is the Lord's Prayer. The Lord is in prayer through the entire chapter here. And notice... What he does in verses 1 through 5, he prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for his immediate 11 disciples. And then in verses 20 and following, he prays for all future generations of disciples. And that's where you and I get in on the prayer, just as if Jesus called our very names. So in a little over 23 verses, 24 verses here, Jesus In his last private interview with the Father before he went to the cross, he prays for his disciples 46 times. 46 times. So what was on his heart before he went to the cross? His disciples. Because he knew without them that this would die in the first generation. Verse 4. He says, I have glorified thee. This is Jesus praying to the Father. Isn't it interesting that here we have deity communicating with deity, and he spoke in a language that John understood well enough to write it down. He didn't speak in some nonsense gibberish and claim that it was a heavenly language that only God understands. Let that soak in. Uh, (laughs) He said, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. I have finished. Now turn to John 19, a couple pages to the right. John 19, verse 30. The holiest hour in the history of the world. It says, when Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, it, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Now you can read John chapter 17, verse 4, and you can read commentary after commentary after commentary, and they will tell you, when he said, I have finished, they will tell you that that is talking about the cross. It's not. The cross is still two chapters away. Here, he's talking about the finished process of training those men in reproduction. Reproduction. He had finished their training. In John chapter 19, he's talking about redemption. So Jesus came to do two things. He came to accomplish reproduction as well as redemption. If he'd only accomplished redemption without putting in place the process of reproduction, it would have died in the first generation. 
The good news would have died in the first generation. If he had only accomplished reproduction without accomplishing redemption, there would have been no good news to tell. So Jesus came to do two things. To bring in the wonderful, wonderful aspect of redemption, but also to put in place the process of reproduction so that you and I would have access to that message. And we're called to do the same thing today, to reproduce. So what was his strategy? How did he do this practically? How did he do this? We've looked at their initiation now. We'll look briefly, just very briefly, at their identity. Their identity. Who were these men? What kind of people does God use? What kind of people does he use? Or just a cursory look at these men will tell us what kind of people God uses. What was his strategy? Now, <clears throat> the listing of the apostles appear in three of the Gospels and in the book of Acts. And we want to look at those on a chart just briefly and kind of see, just get a glimpse of the kind of people God uses. And if you've ever wondered whether small group ministry is pertinent, necessary, then all you need to do is study this chart. And you'll see the strategy of Jesus just by studying this chart. Now, you see the listing, and if you go through the Gospels and the book of Acts, and you list them exactly as they appear, exactly as they appear, very critical, side by side, you learn some things about Jesus' strategy in ministry here. In our text, it said the first was Simon. Simon, when his name in the apostles in uh, Matthew 10, verse 2, says the first Simon. And he's the first in this sense. The, the Greek word is protos. He's the first in leadership, the first in authority. He was the leader of the 12. Anytime anyone wanted to speak with that group that included Jesus and Jesus wasn't there, they always addressed him first. He was always a spokesperson. The first Simon, you know, we get those questions about the church and the structure of our church. Well, if you got elders, you know, how do you do that? I mean, isn't there just one guy that calls all the shots that's a pastor? No. So, but, you know, how, how does that work? They are first, they are the same in essence, they are the same in authority, but not the same in function. Not the same in function. And a lot of people struggle with that. They don't know how to make that out. Well, surely you have just one guy that calls all the shots. No. No, then you wouldn't have a church. You'd just have a dictator with a bunch of little rubber ducks quacking along behind him. <laughs> it's not how God designed it. Not at all. Search the pastoral epistles in Timothy and Titus for that. But he was the first in function. He was the overall leader. He was the leader among leaders. And he was Jesus' key man. And over and over and over. I mean, this man was... Hot-headed, rash, brash, 
I mean, when, he, when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden and he cut off the guy's ear, he wasn't a surgeon. He wasn't aiming for his ear. <laughs> you know, we lose sight of that, man. They had big, crude swords back then. You know, metalwork wasn't an accomplished science the way it is today. He wasn't swinging at that guy's ear. Now, we weren't there, but I would suppose that man ducked and he got his ear. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, this guy would act first and, and think second. He was one of those guys, just charge. Man, I need to see him. I, I was one of those guys. <laughs> Charge. If we're going to dispute, let's don't dispute. Let's just go ahead and fight and get this over with. I don't want to get into all that arguing. <laughs> Say what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but God took that whirlwind and tamed him for his purpose. For his purpose. He, I mean, he asked questions. That's one of the marks of true leadership. Leaders are looking for they're looking to identify problems and seek solutions. So he asked questions all the time. He was always asking questions of the Lord. You know, he said, uh, and then when Jesus would ask questions, he'd always be the one to speak up. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? He said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And you know, I bet he grabbed his mouth and said, where did that come from? <laughs> Because Jesus said, flesh and blood hadn't revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven revealed that to you. No disciple has ever spoken to the way Christ spoke to him. No disciple ever so boldly proclaims the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. And no disciple ever denies it so fervently as did Simon Peter. He was a leader. Notice that, and you can sum up his life in this way, Simon, Simon Peter, Peter. All through the Gospels, initially, his, his non-Christian name was Simon, John 1.42. Jesus said, you are Simon, you shall be called Peter. So there was a process involved there in getting him from Simon to Peter. And since he was Jesus' key man, Jesus said, I give you the keys of the kingdom, he was Jesus' key man. If you notice, on the day of Pentecost, it was Peter that stood and preached the gospel, and 3,000 came to Christ. So he opened the door to the church of the church to the Jews. In Acts 8, when the Samaritans had believed in the Lord but hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet because Peter had to be there with the key and unlock the door. He was Jesus' key man. In Acts chapter 10, when the Gentiles, the first official induction of Gentiles to the body of Christ, Peter had to be there to open the door. He was Jesus' key man in that sense. And he was some kind of leader, some kind of leader. He always asked questions. He said, now, Lord, now that we've left all to follow, uh, what's going to be our reward? I want to know. What, what's going to be our reward? You know, constantly asking questions. Leaders do that. That's one of the, the, the things, the, one of the marks of a leader. I mean, even after the resurrection, he asked questions of the risen Christ. In John 21, when Jesus said, follow me, he said, well, what about John? What, <laughs> what about him? <laughs> Jesus said, that's none of your business if he lives until the second coming. 
And then he had to write a few more verses in John chapter 21 to straighten that out because rumor came that John was going to live to the second coming. (laughs) But he was a consummate leader, always asking questions. Notice this chart. He's always listed first. And the same three men are always in his group. Andrew, James, and John. And then the next group was headed up by Philip. The last group was headed up by James, son of Alphaeus. So Jesus had apparently broken his men into three groups of four to train them. And there were some people he intentionally did not put together in that group. Look at Andrew. Andrew in Scripture in John chapter 1 is introduced in many other places as Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. That's the way he's introduced. There's only one problem with that. When he's introduced that way, Simon Peter hasn't been introduced into the story yet. It's like me saying, greetings, brother. I'm Jim, Donna's brother. What's the question? Who is Donna? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He's introduced by a man that hasn't even been introduced into the story. You know? That's interesting. Think about that. Think about that. You know, there was a Methodist preacher of days gone by in the U.S. named Patrick McConnell. And uh, he had a younger brother. Had a younger brother. And his younger brother said, I am the victim of the double handshake. Because the younger brother would go into a crowd of people and someone would introduce him as James McConnell. And they would shake his hand. And then immediately they say, oh, this is Bishop Patrick McConnell's younger brother. And they say, oh, pleased to meet you. The victim of the double handshake. (laughs) Andrew was the victim of the double handshake. He was introduced, and everywhere you see him is Simon Peter's brother. Even even though Simon hadn't been introduced in the story. And we don't think much of him, but if you look at him very carefully, you find him in action in three times in in the Gospels, and every time he's doing exactly the same thing. He's bringing someone to Jesus Christ. Every single time. And we all know about the, his calling in John 1, but it said the first thing he did was to go find his brother Simon and say, we have found the Messiah. So he was the first home missionary. In John chapter 6, we know about the great miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and we probably know that what he fed them with was little fish cakes. It wasn't whole fish. I mean, they, they would cut the fish up and pickle it and use that as lunch. And, and the, the loaves weren't loaves like we know. They were little small squares of bread. And we know about that, but we overlook how Jesus got his hands on that lunch that day. Andrew brought the boy that had the lunch to Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, he'd seen him make wine. So he probably figured he could work something with this. So he brought the boy, so he was the first youth worker. 
Rob? <laughs> it's the first youth worker. And then in John chapter 12, a group of Greeks came, and they wanted to see Jesus, and, and they, they came to Philip. I mean, Philip was a Jew, but he had a Greek name. I haven't found anywhere what his Jewish name was. And so they probably came to Philip because he had a Greek name. And they wanted to see Jesus. They said, sir, we would see Jesus. And, and he didn't know what to do, so he took him to Andrew. And Andrew took him to Jesus. Every time you see this man in Scripture, he's doing one thing, and that's bringing people to Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you love to have that as an epitaph on your tombstone? All he ever did was bring people to Christ. That's Andrew. Andrew. Next you have James and John, the sons of thunder. Boanerges. Jesus gave them that nickname, the sons of thunder. And they were very, very bold, very, very intolerable. Said, Lord, shall we call down fire on their heads? Very, very intolerable. Jesus transformed these men. James apparently was a whirlwind, and he was apparently more of a problem than Simon Peter. Because when the Roman emperor Trajan decided to persecute the church 14 years later, he started by chopping off the head of James, and he put Peter in jail. So he must have been a problem. Because you take care of the biggest problem first. He didn't chop Peter's head off. Chopped James's head off. So he must have been some kind of problem. And that's the only place we see him alive in Scripture by name. Where he's actually doing something is being martyred. <laughs> John, we know about him, he became the apostle of love. God transformed that man from one who was intolerant, strong-headed, Rain down fire on it. Burn them up, Lord. Just burn them up. They won't listen. <laughs> Transformed him, and you find the longest, most beautiful dissertations on love in the writing of James in the New Testament, or John in the New Testament. Now, it was balanced because not only was the apostle of love, but he was also the apostle of truth. He said, speaking the truth in love, you see, if he'd only focused on love without speaking the truth, which is love, okay, then he would have ended up in all kind of error. You know, you hear that today. Oh, we just want to love them into the kingdom. <laughs> and not tell them the truth? Why? Where are you going to send them to? Hell number two? <laughs> and then there was Philip. Philip was a skilled thinker skilled thinker, probably a facts and figures guy, like us engineering types, huh? Uh, <laughs> probably a facts and figures guy, you know? When Jesus at the, at the feeding of the 5,000 said, Philip, feed him. What are you going to feed him? And he had already done the math. He said, well, you know, if we had, you know, a year's wages here, Lord, wouldn't be enough for all of them to have a little bite. So he'd already done the math, already figured it out. That may have been his function was to make sure that there was food. We don't know, but it was interesting that he'd already figured it out when God asked the question. Notice that Jesus didn't make him his primary leader. You got to have guys that do that, but he didn't make him his primary leader. Because he just thought about it probably too long, and Simon didn't think much. He just got <laughs> charged in. But God needs both of those kind. You know, Philip would have made a good church treasurer, Raj. Never want to spend any money. 
But God has to have those to keep guys like me in mind that want to go spend it all. <laughs> so, oh, people need that for the cause of Christ. Spend it. <laughs> and you had Bartholomew in Thomas's group, in, in Philip's group. And then you had a man by the name of Thomas. We call him, what? Doubting Thomas. You know, I, I, would, I would submit that, that we've probably misjudged that man quite harshly even. You know, when Jesus said he had to go to Jerusalem and he had already told him what was going to happen to him, who spoke up and said, hey, we'll go and we'll die with you? Thomas. Thomas. He was committed to the Lord. And after the resurrection, and this is why we call him Doubting Thomas, after the resurrection when he didn't believe those, but then Jesus came and said, here, Thomas, feel my hands, stick, uh, feel my hands the nail prints, stick your hand in my side. He just fell down and said, my Lord and my God. The greatest affirmation in the Gospels of who Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ is. Look at another man in his group, Matthew. Matthew always in his gospel, identifies himself as a tax collector. That was not a, a pretty thing. Not at all a pretty thing. Tax collectors were, were sellouts. They, had, they were Jews that had sold out to the hated Roman government, and they were hated by the people. I mean, the, the, the Talmud even said, it's okay to lie and cheat a tax collector. <laughs> now, the Bible doesn't say that, but the Talmud does. I mean, he, he was a hated man. Because Rome put the job on the table at a price, and when he had gathered enough money, he purchased the job. Rome told him how much he had to gather in taxes, and all above that, he lined his pockets with. So he was hated. He was one of the mokes. There was the big mokes that stayed in the background, and they hired little mokes. They were tax gatherers who actually sat on the street and did the taxing of everything. They say, oh... Janae, you have on two shoes. I will tax those shoes, each. Your donkey has four legs. I'll tax those donkey, leg, those donkey legs. And they put the money, the excess, over and above what Rome said they had to gather in their pockets. was hated. Hated. Next you have James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot. The Zealot tells you a great deal about them. You see, the Zealots were a political revolutionary party faithful to Jews. And they hated the Romans, and they all carried a little dagger that they had pledged with their lives if they could get close enough to any Roman official, they were going to stick him with that dagger and kill him. These, these were assassins. <laughs> get the picture? What kind of men does Jesus use? All kinds all kinds. Notice that Jesus didn't put Matthew and Simon or Matthew and James in the same group. Remember what I said? Matthew was a sellout. He was a traitor to the Jews. And, and, and this other guy was a Jewish patriot. If they were out of the group, he might have stuck him with that knife. <laughs> What kind of men does Jesus use? What kind of people does Jesus use? He uses all kind. All kind. Lessons for our lives, quickly.
Jesus Christ did not save you and me to make us fireproof. Jesus Christ did not save you and me to make us fireproof. He saved us to represent him. He saved us that we would continue this work that he gave in his great commission. Jesus Christ didn't save us to make us fireproof. The next one is a question. Are you being discipled? Are you being discipled? With the focus on being sent, going to represent Christ, whether locally or abroad or both. Are you being discipled? You say, but Jim, you know, I'm too old for that. I can't, you know, I just told you about my dear friend Don Shuey, who's in his late 70s now, and he's still being used mightily in the cause of Christ. Mightily. And he's still impacting people around the globe. It's incredible. Around the globe. You say, I don't have the resources. Well, he didn't say where there is no money, the people perish. <laughs> Isn't that right? He says, what? Where there's no vision. Where there's no seeing things from God's point of view, the people perish. Number three, are you discipling others, training others with a view towards sending them to represent Christ? You know, some, some men in this congregation have spent four, five, six years in seminary, Bible colleges. Others, like myself, have spent many, many years being trained by a more veteran Christian, a more veteran leader. Are you training others in obedience to the command to make disciples? And last, if you're here today and you don't have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you've never known him for the pardon of your sin, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And the word know there is a word for intimacy. I know them. I'm intimate with them. If you don't have that intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ because you've never surrendered to him, I would encourage you, implore you to settle that before you leave this place this morning. <laughs>